couple of days ago, I read a news story about a Who's Your Daddy truck operated on the streets of New York City selling instant DNA tests to people who wonder where they came from. I suspect that business will be a success, for we are defined by our heritage. Down south, when someone asks, who's your daddy? It's a way of identifying where you fit in the community. I've learned there's a Dutch version of that in Linden. And everyone seems to know who's whose daddy. Our text this morning talks about our spiritual heritage. God made his covenant with Abraham, so it's important that we're related to Abraham. And sure enough, all kinds of religions claim to be descendants of Abraham. But according to the New Testament, it's not being a blood relative that counts. The true children of Abraham are those who walk in the faith of Abraham. So Hebrews 11 unpacks for us what the faith of Abraham looks like. In fact, this study on Abraham is the biggest portion of this chapter on faith. So this morning we continue to look at that, looking at uh, verses 11 and 12. Let me read it. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered himself faithful, because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. It's a very brief passage, but it has three interesting truths that it suggests to us as I see it. So let me just tell you three things. The first is this, that faith is a family affair. Faith is a family affair. When speaking of Hebrews 11, uh, people often call it uh, the chapter on the great heroes of the faith, and and that's certainly not entirely wrong. But generally, when we think of heroes, we think of people who all alone distinguish themselves as extraordinary. And we would certainly find people like that in Hebrews chapter 11. But in the lesson of faith presented to us today, Abraham was not all alone. In this case, faith was a family affair. It was not just Abraham who believed God. Sometimes we talk about Abraham as if uh, there was no wife in view ever, but our text gives a significant place to Abraham's wife, Sarah. Actually, Sarah seems to be the subject of the sentence in verse 11. Now, the New International Version that I just read doesn't really uh, bring that out, but the, new, uh, the, the, the English Standard Version, which is a newer translation, a somewhat more literal translation, uh, makes that very clear. There we read, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah's the one whose faith is highlighted in verse 11. And sure enough, in Genesis 22, where uh, Isaac's birth is recorded, Sarah's son, we read, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old 
age. Now, this does not discount Abraham and his faith in any way. He is clearly the subject of verse 12. But he did not have a son by himself. In fact, according to the scriptures, Abraham didn't even have faith by himself. Sarah believed with him. And in that sense, Abraham's faith is a family affair. I make that point because there's always a very different view floating around in the church. In attempting to guard the importance of a man's role in his home, some Christians seem to do so by, by diminishing the significance of his wife's role. I saw a great example of this some time ago in my own presbytery. That's the regional governing body. It's like a classes for you who from a different tradition. The presbytery had set up a policy that if there was trouble with a man's ministry, trouble in the church and the pastor, that uh, when they came to speak to the elders of the church and they came to speak to the pastor, they would also speak to the pastor's wife. That doesn't even seem controversial to me. But one minister responded by launching into a rant, saying what he did in his ministry was none of his wife's business, nor should her opinion carry any weight with the presbytery. Whoa. <laughs> That's a one-man, heroic vision of the ministry. But it's not the picture of faith painted here. Those Christian men who discount the importance of their wives and of their wives walking together with them in the faith, those men are out of step with our spiritual father, Abraham. For Abraham's faith was a family affair. Second truth. The power is in God's promise, not in your faith. The power is in God's promise, not in your faith. When we see people who really excel at something, athletes like we saw in the Olympics, musicians, writers, entrepreneurs of all kinds, we tend to readily admit we could never be like them because we don't have the talent or the brains or the imagination or the, the, the physical prowess, whatever it might be. And that's probably true. You can't just decide to be an Olympic athlete. You may not have what it takes. And so when we see the great saints of God recorded here in Hebrews 11, who by faith did astonishing things, we just automatically assume that we could never be like that because we don't have that great and powerful faith that they had. But folks, there's a difference. Those successful athletes and musicians and entrepreneurs made it by the strength of their great talents and abilities. But in regard to the saints of old, they were successful not because of their powerful faith, but because of the powerful promises of God that they believed. And Abraham and Sarah are a perfect example of that. 
Let me take you on a brief tour of the Genesis story of Abraham and Sarah, where you can see how pitiful their faith was. In Genesis 15, God promised to give Abraham a son, an heir. God said, God took him outside and said, look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And in response, Abraham believed the Lord, and God credited to him as righteousness. God made a great promise. Abraham believed it, that simple. But in the very next chapter, chapter 16 of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah come up with their own, if God isn't going to do it, we'll do it ourselves plan. Sarah says, I'll give you my servant girl, Hagar, and we'll see if you can get her pregnant, and then we'll have the child that God promised. Now, in their defense, this was a rather common culturally accepted practice, but this was not some magnificent faith. Indeed, indeed it flew in the face of actually believing God's promise. But they did it. But in Genesis 17, next chapter, God specifically promised Abraham, no, you'll have a son by Sarah. And what was Abraham's response? He laughed at God's promise. He laughed at God's promise. Are you impressed with his faith yet? And in fact, rather than rejoicing, oh God, I'm sorry, I was messed up here. I didn't realize you really meant you were going to do that. Oh no. Instead he said, well God, I have this son Ishmael. What is Ishmael good enough? Argued with God. In Genesis 18, the next chapter, God appeared to Abraham and got even more specific. He said that by this time next year, Sarah will have a son. That's pretty specific. Sarah must have been excited to hear that, right? She was in the tent laughing. <laughs> You've got to be kidding. You don't know what you're talking about. So the Lord confronted them. Why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah lied about it. So I didn't laugh. God said, you did laugh. By the way, when that son was born, Isaac, they named him, which means laughter. <laughs> well, fast forwarding from Genesis 18 on down to Genesis 20, they traveled down to the area controlled by King Abimelech. And Abraham was pretty cowardly, and he says, Abimelech is going to see my beautiful wife, and he's going to decide he wants her, he's going to kill me to have my wife. So Abraham lied to King Abimelech and said, she's my sister, not my wife. And so Abimelech, thinking Sarah was fair game, began to take her to be his wife, until the Lord warned him, you don't know what you're doing, you better stop this. By the way, this is the second time Abraham the coward had done this, he did it back in Egypt in Genesis 12. Now you would think that a man of great faith would trust God to take care of the woman that God had just promised was going to bear him a son this year. Taking all this together, what do you think about Abraham and Sarah's faith? We would have to conclude that their faith was pitifully weak. Or, or more accurately, their faith was 
had lots of gaps and lapses. And yet, God holds them up to us as a paradigm of faith. What's going on? Well, first, obviously, we learn here the power is not in the faith. The power is in the promise that God made. Their faith was really pitiful at times, but God's promise toward which they turned their pitiful faith was awesome. And God was able to do what he promised. These days there's a lot of talk about the power of faith, both inside and outside the church, as if faith had some inherent mystical power to make things happen. Faith has no power. Faith only believes the promise of a powerful God. If we're not careful, we start talking as if we're projecting the power of faith. You hear that kind of language. But folks, that's New Age paganism. That is our own self believing that we can work through our psychic or spiritual powers to make things happen. Happen, Believing I can do anything that I believe I can do. How many times have you heard that? Oh, really? Suppose for a moment that God had not promised to give Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age. But they had powerful faith and they exercised it perfectly. Believing they would have a son when they were 100 years old. How many sons do you think they would have produced as a couple of hundred-year-old people by the power of their faith? Not one. Zero. Nada. The power is in God's promise, not in your pitiful faith. Another thing we learn here in regard to that. Don't be too quick to judge someone else's faith. Can you imagine if you had been there listening to Sarah as she laughed in God's face? Maybe you were having coffee with Sarah that day. And you came home and later and you're talking to your husband and you said, You know, honey, that Sarah may claim to be a Christian and she may be married to a godly man, but boy, it's all just a sham. It is just a sham. Well, I was standing there this afternoon. I heard with my own ears that she laughed in God's face and then lied about it. You know, I think that might even have been blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Unforgivable sin. I don't expect to see her in heaven. Mm-mm-mm-mm. She may have everybody else fooled, but not me. But in our text, God says, if you want to know what faith looks like, Look at Abraham and Sarah. Yes, their faith was fickle. Yes, they often doubted. Yes, their doubts sometimes looked like blatant unbelief. But through it all, they repeatedly turned their paltry faith back to the promise God had made. And God honored that pitiful faith and kept his promise. And he will do the same for you. Who have even a tiny little 
kernel of faith, like a mustard seed, Jesus said, but to turn away from your self-sufficiency and focus your hope and your trust on the Savior. For the power is in God's promise, not in your great faith. Finally, there's a third truth here. Faith lives as if God's promises had already come true. Faith lives as if God's promises had already come true. I've mentioned before Mark Twain's famous definition of faith. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Now, I hate that definition, for it seems to be a mockery of faith, probably what Twain intended. But at the same time, I kind of like that definition, for there's an element of truth in it. Faith is believing not just anything, but what God has promised, believing that even when you have not seen it yet. In that sense, faith is believing what you know is not yet so. Believing because God has promised it will be so. Or as we put it in this third point, faith lives as if God's promises had already come true. Think about that promise which God made and which Abraham believed. God promised to make him the father of many nations. To give him a son in his old age through whom worldwide blessedness would come about. Now my first impulse is to think about that and say, well, that was a pretty easy thing for Abraham. I mean, he could say, if God does it okay, if God doesn't do it okay, I can't make that happen. God's going to make it happen, so if God doesn't come through, it's not my problem, it's his problem. But something else happened in Genesis 17 that kind of upped the ante of Abram's faith. God changed Abram's name. Abram, which is the first name we find in Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, Abram means exalted father. A rather absurd name for a man with no children. Exalted father. In Genesis 17... God said, that's not good enough. I'm going to give you another name. I'm going to call you Abraham, which means father of a multitude. You could be an exalted father of one. Your father of a multitude requires a lot of grandkids. Does God have a sense of humor or what? Abraham is the, Abram is the name used exclusively before Genesis 17, verse 5. After that, he's always known as Abraham, father of the multitude. So where's the multitude of Abraham's grandchildren? Running around, vindicating him every time he says his name. Well, folks, his son Isaac wasn't even born until a year after this. And Abraham was a really old man years later when he sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. So the truth is, I don't think... I can find no evidence that Abraham ever even saw one grandchild from son Isaac. 
Meanwhile, here's Abraham with no heirs, or maybe Ishmael, walking around, introducing himself as a father of multitudes. Oh, really? Where's your multitude? Oh, well, God said. By faith, he did that. He lived as if God's promises had already come true. That seems to be the point Paul makes when considering the same subject in the New Testament in Romans 4. Almost the whole chapter is about Abram's faith and how it applies to us. Us who have the promise of the gospel in Christ. So let me read a little section from Romans 4, starting with verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as, been, just as had been said to him, so your offspring shall be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, it is credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. That's in Romans 4. By faith, Abraham took hold of the promise of God, who calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham believed. And folks, that's what we're called to do when we hear the gospel. We know we're not righteous. We know we cannot be righteous. We've tried plenty enough times. But God promises that Jesus makes us righteous. And so we believe him, and we begin to walk as God's righteous children. And the world may say, I know you, you're no more righteous than I am. And our own conscience may say, you're not kidding anyone, you know you're not righteous. And Satan may say, you're one of mine just like you always were. But by faith we reply, Jesus paid it all on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead, proving he is able to give new life to sinners. And I believe it. Lord, help my unbelief. I trust Jesus, the life giver. By faith we believe that that in Jesus God gives us righteousness and new life. Though we live it out all of our days in dying, sin-riddled bodies. That's what Abraham did. He lived as if God's promises had already come true. 
He lived as the father of the multitude. Though there was not yet any multitude. Only the promise. And God did exactly what he had promised. He made him the father of a multitude of Jews throughout the centuries. But even more, God made him the father of Jesus. And thus the father of an innumerable multitude from every tribe and nation on the face of the earth. Those who in faith trust the Savior. So who's your daddy? Are you a child of Abraham, an heir of God's covenant of grace? Well, you're not going to learn by taking the DNA test from uh, some mobile lab on the street in a truck. Well, some religions think that's all that matters, that we're physical descendants of Abraham, either through Isaac or through Ishmael. But the New Testament makes makes clear that the true children of Abraham are those who believe in Jesus, Abraham's seed, believe with a faith that's like Father Abraham. So what does that faith look like? Well, we learned three things this morning. We learned that faith is a family thing. God doesn't call us to be lone rangers. He most often calls us by families, husbands and wives, parents and children. He calls us into his family, family full of spiritual brothers and sisters. (coughs) Secondly, we learn that the the power is in God's promise, not in our faith. We are not saved because we have great faith. We are saved because our pitifully meager faith looks in hope to a great Savior doesn't matter how weak your faith is. What matters is how strong the Savior is. Third, we learn that faith lives as if God's promises had already come true. We don't see all God's promises fulfilled yet. If we did, we wouldn't need faith to believe it. But because we know his promises are certain, we take him at his word just like Abraham did. Honestly, facing our weakness and our unworthiness, but not wavering concerning the promise of God's grace in Jesus. Being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he promised, to forgive our sins and renew our souls and give us eternal life. And so by faith we live as those who are forgiven, renewed, with eternal life. Though we haven't seen it all yet. That's the promise. And we believe it. And live like it. Amen. Let's pray.